Well, it's an honor and a joy to be able to share this morning's message with you. Um, this is an exciting time uh, for me because next Saturday I'm going to walk across the stage and Dallas Seminary is going to confer upon me a Master of Theology and Philip's going to be there with me. Um, the irony is not lost upon me that I feel like I know far much less now than I did five years ago, but they're going to say that I'm a Master of Theology. So, well, let's get started this morning. It was the fall semester of my junior year at the University of Northern Iowa when I first met him. I was on my way to class, and he was coming the opposite direction toward me. And the first thing I noticed about him was his head twitch. And it made me a little bit uncomfortable. And as our paths got a little bit closer, I could notice some other things about this young man. His hair was brown, a little bit greasy. He had quarter-inch uh, lenses on his face that somehow managed to stay there despite his twitching. And I, uh, he was a little bit unkempt. But there was something about him that made me uncomfortable. A couple days later, uh, I'm going to class again. And I see that young man again. Now, bear in mind that when I was in high school, we had some special needs students that were a part of uh, our school, but they were always in their own classroom. They had their own teachers. Uh, They had their own curriculum. They were among us, but they really weren't a part of us. This student was different, though. He was among us, and he was a part of us. And there was something about that that made me uncomfortable. So when I saw him a few days later, I saw him coming, I did something. You see, I I had an internal GPS system in my mind. I knew all the sidewalks of my campus. I knew the different side streets. And I rerouted myself to get to class so that I wouldn't have to cross paths with him. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever rejected somebody? Have you ever turned somebody away simply because they were different? Maybe you're in the line at the grocery store and you see somebody dressed with tattoos all over them. They've got body piercings in their nose and their eyebrow and Lord knows where else. And they, they're, you get a glimpse at their eyes and they're as dark as the clothes that they're wearing and there's something about that person's presence that makes you uncomfortable. And maybe it's in the lobby of your business. A disheveled beggar comes in and you... There's something about that person's presence that makes you uncomfortable, and you don't want that person there. Uh, Maybe you're in high school or middle school, and there's that socially awkward student that nobody wants to be around, and they make you uncomfortable. That was the case for me. I didn't want to be around this student whose head twitched involuntarily. Well, the passage that we're going to look at this morning deals with this issue of rejection. It deals with this issue of encountering people that are different from us. So if you're not already there, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. Gunnar, you did a great job this morning. Last week when I invited Gunnar to share, uh, to read this morning's uh, passage, he looked at me and he thought about it for a moment. He said, Matthew 15, 21 to 28. Yes! And he gave me a little fist pump. And he said, Thank you for giving me a short passage to read. (laughs) But Gunnar, you did a great job. So, picking it up. By the way, before we get started, 
I had printed some uh, note, uh, half sheet of page of notes. Have all of you gotten that? Very good. So I'll be referring to that throughout the message. So let's pick it up, beginning in verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Let's pause for a moment. Leaving what place? Well, it's that place where Jesus has another confrontation with the Pharisees. This time it's about the the, uh, disciples who fail to wash their hands before they eat. And it leads into a discussion, a confrontation, a conversation that Jesus has with the Pharisees about what it is that makes a man clean and unclean. And ultimately, Jesus is going to say, it's not what goes into a man's body that makes him unclean, but it's what comes out of it. It, What comes out of the heart, what comes out of the mouth, is reflective of what's in the heart. So he has that confrontation, and he withdraws to the region of where Tyre and Sidon. The important thing to notice here is that he's leaving Israelite land, and he's entering into Gentile territory to Tyre and Sidon. Perhaps he's looking for a respite. Perhaps he's looking for a place to rest. So he withdraws withdraws to that region. Surely the Pharisees aren't going to chase after him there. They're not going to risk defiling themselves by leaving Israelite territory and entering into Gentile land. But the rest is not going to be found, at least not yet. Verse 22, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Now, what's interesting about this verse is how Matthew chooses to tell it. When Mark tells us about this same incident in Mark chapter 7, he doesn't refer to the woman in the same way. He simply refers to her as Greek-born of Syrian Phoenicia. So we need to ask ourselves the question, why? Why would Matthew choose to describe this woman in these terms? Uh, What's interesting is, this is the only time Matthew uses this word in his gospel. Moreover, it's the only time that this word, Canaanite, is used in the entire New Testament. And so something interesting is going on here. So let's take a little journey together. Put your hiking boots on, metaphorically, and let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 7 because the Canaanites are the most morally despised enemies of Israel. And and not only that, we need to consider Matthew's first century readership. Who is it that Matthew's writing to? He's writing to first century Jews. And so when the Jews, when his audience is going to read this term, something on the back of their neck is going to stand up on end. And I want to catch why some of that animosity exists between Jews and Gentiles. So Deuteronomy chapter 7, picking it up in verse 1. When Now Moses, of course, here is speaking to the Israelites. They're on the threshold of entering into the promised land to cross over uh, the Jordan to go into Jericho. And he says this, When the Lord your God brings you out into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And right now Gunnar is thinking, thank you for not letting me read that passage (laughs) because it has big words. So seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. 
God is asking the Israelites to go in and completely wipe out the Canaanites that are living there. It's interesting, in the Hebrew construction, this is an absolute infinitive, and it has an emphatic emphasis to it. You must utterly destroy them, wipe them out. Some versions will say annihilate them. Why? Because God doesn't want his people contaminated by the pagan, idolatrous, morally corrupt Canaanites. So Israel crosses the land. We journey through the rest of Deuteronomy. We get to Joshua. Joshua comes in and he conquers the land almost, but not quite. He doesn't actually conquer them because in Joshua chapter 13, we read that they don't totally decimate the Canaanites. And this is going to be something that's going to plague Israel for generation after generation. We continue on. We get to the book of Judges. The Jews continue to have these confrontations, these conflicts with the Canaanites that live in the land. Think of all the husbands that have been slaughtered, that have been killed in these conflicts. The brothers that have, been, have died. The sons that have died. You can begin to catch a sense for why the Jews harbor such animosity towards these Canaanites. That conflict is going to continue as we come into 1 Samuel. Samuel, the judge, is going to continue to have to deal with the Philistines. And he's going to have to deal with the Canaanites. That happens also with the first king of Israel, King Saul. He's going to be dealing with them. Finally, we get to King David in 2 Samuel. He's going to be dealing with them. And he's going to subdue them for a time. But in 931, when his son Solomon uh, dies, the kingdom is split. It's torn in two, you remember? So Rehoboam takes the south. Jeroboam takes the north. And Jeroboam sets up these idols, these calves in Bethel and Dan. And he begins this idea of uh, idolatry, this cultic worship in the northern kingdom. Well, that's that's a seed that's going to continue to to grow and and come into full blossom when later in 1 Kings chapter 16, we have another king by the name of Ahab. Who does Ahab marry? The daughter of a Sidonian king. The daughter of a Canaanite king. Her name is Jezebel. She comes and together Ahab and Jezebel cement idol worship in Israel. This is an an apostasy that Israel is going to pay dearly for. For in 721 B.C., the Assyrian king, Shalmaneser, is going to come in and he's going to take the Jewish people away and send them into exile. He's going to take conquered peoples from other areas of the region and resettle them. You get a mixed race of Jews and Gentiles, and this is the Samaritans. So can you catch the animosity that would exist between Jews and Gentiles. And Matthew is intending to use this word to strike an emotional chord with his audience of the first century. The two groups didn't like one another. This is a stranger for the disciples. They're not comfortable with her presence. They invade their box, so to speak. And you know what their response is? Now, let's go back. To chapter 15 of Matthew, verse 23. Jesus did not answer a word. So, because of Jesus' silence, his disciples come to Jesus, come to him, and they urge him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. You see, what our tendency is, when these people, whether it's a person that looks different in the grocery store line, somebody, a disheveled beggar that comes into the business, our, our business or the lobby of our business, or that socially awkward person, or whether it's a, 
a student with a head twitch. Our tendency is to push these people out of our lives, to get them out of our box. You see, we don't like it when people come in and they threaten our comfort. We don't like it when they upset the fruit basket, as it were. It's like when you're camping and you've set your tent on an uneven campsite and it's tilting in one direction. Or maybe if you've been demoted or, you know, you're in an RV now and the RV isn't quite balanced. So there's something off and we don't like it. We want to reset it. We want to get that equilibrium back in our lives because that's what we like. And one of the ways in which we can do that is we just push people away. So the first point that I want us to catch this morning in your outline is that God's people sometimes reject strangers. I'll say that again, is that God's people will sometimes reject strangers. But this isn't right. This isn't proper for God's people. We all do this. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, why? Why do we sometimes reject people? Why do we sometimes push them to the periphery of our life? I think there's a number of reasons. I'll start out by sharing a couple ones that I think are superficial. One, we might fill the margins of our lives. We get so busy that we don't have time for interruptions. Our lives can become like Gordon's Bible. (laughs) Have any of you ever seen Gordon's Bible? You could open it up to any page of the Scriptures. It could be 1 Chronicles and those nine chapters of genealogies. Highlighted, underlined, notes in the margins. There's no more place to write anything. And that's sometimes how we fill our lives, right? Our lives are so full, it's so crowded, so that when we encounter that person in the checkout line at the grocery store, we say, I don't have time. i got to get home, feed the kids, get dinner ready. Uh, For the business person in the lobby, we care about customer satisfaction. And if we have these disheveled beggars coming into our place of business, it might drive the customers away. If you're in middle school or high school, you might be concerned about losing cool points. You don't want to be seen with that person. But I think there's deeper reasons. Those are superficial reasons. There's deeper reasons why we push people outside of our box. And I believe it's this, is that sometimes we are more preoccupied with ourselves. We live in an I-centered world, and we're not others-centered. Here's the thing. One of the great consequences of the fall in Genesis chapter 3 that sin has this tendency to bend our soul back in on itself. It inverts the soul so that we aren't able to do what we are created and designed to do in the first place, which, from Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, is to reflect the glory of God in all creation. In much the same way that the moon might reflect the, the light that comes from the sun. Sin has a way of inverting the soul, bending it back in on itself, so that we're rendered incapable of reflecting God's glory, of allowing these people to come into our lives. And so, we have preconceptions about tattoos and body piercings, and we want to maintain our comfort rather than risk conversation with that person in the checkout line. The disheveled beggar, you become more concerned about your bottom line Because that profit margin might be your source of significance and security. You're concerned about yourself. You're you're protective of your box. The high school or middle school cafeteria, you're more concerned about your social status taking a hit. It's my reputation that's on the line. And so rather than risk that, I'll just push 
this person away. That's the terrible consequence of the fall. And this is what we see the disciples doing in verse uh, 23. They push her away. This is the second thing that I want us to catch this morning, is that we prefer to protect our box. The second point that I want us to catch this morning is that we prefer to protect our box. When other people threaten it, sometimes it's easier, and this is our natural tendency, is to push them away. So what's the solution? How are we going to overcome the curse of the fall? How are we going to take our soul and, and bend it back out again so that we can reflect God well in all that we say and do? Well, there's something special about this character that enters Matthew's scene. There's something special about this woman. So let's look now at the conversation that she has with Jesus. Let's pick it up in verse 24. So the woman, she comes. She's begging Jesus, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus turns and says to her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus has a very particular audience in mind as he comes to do his incarnational ministry on earth. He's sent to the lost sheep of Israel. This particular Canaanite Gentile woman is not included in that. And so he truthfully says to her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Verse 25, the woman came and knelt before him. Uh, The verb here in the Greek is proskuneo. She supplicates. She submits herself before the Lord, putting herself at his feet. She says, Lord, help me. Notice, there is no argument that she's making. She's not pushing back on Jesus. She simply says, yes, I know, but I want you to understand how terrible it is to live in the same house where an evil, distinct personality has taken up residence in my daughter whom I love. Please, Jesus, help me. If you can't help me, nobody can. She's desperate. And now Jesus says in verse 26, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Honestly, this is one of the rudest things that Jesus could have said. He compares her to a dog. It's not right to take the children's bread, that is the bread that's supposed to go to the Jews and toss it to the dogs. Verse 27, yes, Lord. Again, no argument. She accepts the argument that Jesus is making. Yes, Lord, I know. I know who your primary ministry is to. I know my position at this table but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Please observe that this is S apostrophe. At the master's table, this is plural. In the Greek, it's ton kurion. Right? So she's not ex- exactly calling Jesus her master. What she's saying is the Jews are the master at the table, and she acknowledges that the Jews are generally good people. They're good masters, and because they're good masters, they don't let their house pets starve to death. And she says, even the crumbs are good enough for me right now. Verse 28, Jesus says, that's it. You got it. Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And Matthew tells us that her daughter was healed that very hour. Observe, this is the only debate that Jesus loses, and he loses it gladly. 
Because there's something about this woman that Matthew is trying to draw our attention to. He wants us to direct our gaze upon this woman because there's something about her that we need for us, for our lives today. And that's her faith. It's the genuineness of her faith. This is the third point that I want us to catch this morning is that genuine faith, and by genuine I mean this, it is a humble, it's a persevering, grace-filled faith. Genuine faith wins God's approval. Genuine faith wins God's approval. And it's always been this way. Now, let's put our hiking boots back on one more time because we're going to march real quickly through Matthew's Gospel because Matthew is trying to say to us that this woman's faith is unique. It's different. It's always been this way that genuine faith wins God's approval. Um, Let's look first at at uh, Matthew chapter 9, picking it up in verse 27. What do we have here in Matthew chapter 9, 27? We have two blind men who come to Jesus and they say, have mercy on us, son of David. Matthew almost takes the exact same words out of these two blind men and he puts it into the mouth of a Canaanite woman, a person who is the most unlikely person to receive the benefits of the kingdom. Right? So these two blind men in Matthew chapter 9 say, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. There's another set of blind men in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 20, verse 29. We see two more blind men. These guys come to Jesus. They say, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. This term, the Lord, Son of David, is a term that Matthew uses nine times in his gospel. But these two particular times are interesting. These are two blind men. They shouldn't be able to see who Jesus is, and yet they do. And Matthew takes these words and puts them into the mouth of the Canaanite woman. And she says, Lord, Son of David. Figuratively speaking, she's blind as well. She doesn't have the prophets. She doesn't have the law. She doesn't have the benefit of the Old Testament. She shouldn't be able to see who Jesus is, and yet she does. Contrast her faith, which is great, with the disciples' faith. Chapter 14, Jesus and Peter now are on the water. Peter falls into the water after seeing the waves. Jesus comes over to him, and he picks him up, and he says, You of little Contrast this woman's faith with that of the Pharisees, which is non-existent. In the previous chapter, chapter 15, verse 9, quoting from Isaiah, I think it's 29, Jesus says, They, that is the religious leaders of Israel, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are but mere rules taught by men. This woman's faith is awesome. And Jesus rewards it by granting her request. Isn't that awesome? That anyone who has a genuine faith in Jesus Christ is able to receive the benefits of the kingdom. Now, put yourself, first century Jewish audience, the one, when you hear that, something on the back of your neck is going to stand up and you're going to say, what? You mean a Gentile, a Canaanite woman can receive the benefits of the kingdom? You see, Israel and the Jews of that time, they have certain expectations. They have a little box of what they're expecting their Savior to come like. They're expecting the second Samuel chapter 7, the seed of David, the Davidic covenant, the fulfillment of that. They're expecting the Psalm chapter 2 guy who's going to come and rule with an iron scepter. They're looking for somebody to overthrow the Romans because they don't like the political oppression. They've got their box. And this doesn't quite 
fit with it. This is why the Pharisees are continuing to track Jesus down. They have the intent to kill. They want to trap him so that they can kill him because they want to push him away. They want to get him outside of their box. But Matthew sees things from a different perspective. He sees it from God's point of view. He understands that God's plan of salvation explodes the box. That's the fourth point that I want us to catch this morning, is that God's plan of salvation explodes our box. Now, Matthew has been telling us this throughout his gospel, and so here we go with a little, another little march through Matthew's gospel. It starts in chapter 1 with the lineage of Jesus. When a couple women are dropped into the line of Jesus, Tamar, who is she? She is a Gentile. She is a uh, Gentile woman who receives the benefits of the kingdom. Rahab, remember that prostitute from uh, Jericho who shelters the spies? Gentile woman brought into the benefits of the kingdom. You have Ruth of that Moabitess, a Gentile woman brought into Gentile, being able to receive the benefits of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 2, we have the Magi. These are Gentile men, but they come from the east and they proskuneo. They worship Jesus. Continuing on with Matthew chapter 8, you have a Gentile Roman centurion who brings his servant to Jesus, and Jesus heals this man's servant at a distance. Same thing he does for the Canaanite woman. And he commends this man for his great faith. This is a Gentile who receives the benefits of the kingdom. Chapter 12, we have a reference to Jonah. The story of Jonah, you have a Jewish prophet who goes to Gentile land in Nineveh, preaches repentance, and they repent. Gentiles, once again, receive the benefits of the kingdom because God's plan of salvation explodes our box. We're moving here in the flow and the story of God's redemption in human history from a Jewish-centered salvation to a universal salvation where this gospel is going to go viral. It's going to go global. So that when Matthew ends his gospel in chapter 28, go therefore and make disciples of what? All nations are going to benefit from this. Because God's plan of salvation explodes our box. Here's the central truth that I think Matthew is trying to get his audience to understand and for us today is that the only and the sometimes unexpected the only and sometimes unexpected precondition to receiving the benefits of the kingdom is a persevering, humble, grace-filled faith in Jesus Christ. Ethnic background doesn't matter. Racial diversity doesn't matter. All those external things that we prejudge people with, that doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is a genuine, humble faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only precondition, and sometimes it's unexpected. It hits us in a way that we don't expect. And that's how it would have hit Matthew's readers of the first century. Now, this fifth point that I want to share with you is a little bit different than what you have in your notes because I pull a bob and I change some things at the last minute. (laughs) But this is the fifth thing that I want us to catch this morning, is that genuine faith enables God's people to receive strangers. I'll say that again for those of you who are taking notes, is that genuine faith enables God's people to receive strangers. 
So let's go back now to that campus, the University of Northern Iowa, my junior year. I was taking a math class that semester, and I was having a little bit of trouble keeping pace because I was realizing that some of my algebra skills were lacking. So I go to my professor and I say, okay, I need a little bit of help. Um, is there any sort of remediation, any sort of, what can you offer? Like, I, I need to get my skills up to par. She says, yeah, sure, no problem. We have tutoring sessions that are available on these days at these times. Come, take advantage of them. I said, great, I'm there. So I go on that day, go up to the second floor of the math building. I open up the door, and who do you think sitting behind the desk? stands up. I mean, have you ever had that feeling when you're like at the Texas Giant at Six Flags and you drop and your stomach, you're one place but your stomach is another? Yeah, that's how I felt. This, my stomach just bottomed out from underneath me. I had this pit. Like, oh no, you've got to be kidding me. He stands up and he reaches his hand out and he says, hi, my name's John. I said, hi John, my name's Brian. He said, it's good to meet you, Brian. So we sat down together. Uh, I found out that John's a pretty good math student. (laughs) John's a pretty good tutor. You know what else I found out? John's a Christian. John has a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Now look how I was treating my brother in Christ. Just because I was uncomfortable with his presence. Isn't that amazing? So John and I actually develop a friendship. We actually sit down in the cafeteria together and we get to talk and I'm no longer put off. I'm not ashamed of his twitching anymore. I actually enjoy him. And I come to find out that John has talents other than mathematics. He's actually a very good magician. Justin, you would have enjoyed meeting this young man. Justin's a great musician. Well, one of the things that I've come to find out in my relationship with John is that people with Tourette's syndrome, sometimes when they're distracted, when they're doing something up in front of an audience, their symptoms disappear. And so John would use his magic skills to share his testimony in Jesus Christ about what God has done for him to audiences. So he come eventually he came to my church and he did these really cool magic tricks. And he had these rings, he did these things with the rings that was just amazing. And he shared his testimony with the people at my church. And this is his little ministry. And it was the neatest thing. But John had a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. I had a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, though it was being worked out imperfectly that semester, as it has been worked out imperfectly every semester since. Observe that this woman's faith isn't necessarily perfect, but it is genuine. We can't perfect our faith this side of eternity. We will someday in heaven. But it has to be real. It has to be genuine. It has to be humble. We have no claim on the kingdom. All we can offer is ourselves. It needs to be persevering. It needs to be grace-filled. And we each had that kind of faith. And we were able to have fellowship as a result of that. So what does this mean for us today, for us who uh, are hearing this message as we go forth from this place and we go back out into the workplace, back out into wherever it is the Lord were to take you. Well, I want to leave us with this challenge. I want to leave us with this um, uh, challenge to apply for our lives today. It's this. I want to challenge us to continue to develop a genuine, that is, a humble, persevering, grace-filled faith. Continue to develop a genuine faith. 
Why? Because it's that genuine faith that enables God's people to receive strangers. We can tear down those preconceptions, tear down those prejudices that we have about certain people because we realize we're no different than them. So, when you're in the checkout line at the grocery store, introduce, I want to challenge you, introduce yourself to that stranger that's got tattoos, that piercings, whose eyes are black. Introduce yourself to that person. Get to know them. You might be surprised about what you find out, as I was in my relationship with John. For the disheveled person that comes into your lobby, offer them a drink of water. Okay? Offer them a drink. Get to know them a little bit. You might be surprised at what you find out about them. Maybe they are a believer. Maybe they've just stumbled upon some really hard times, and they're trying to get their feet back underneath them again, but they're struggling. So introduce yourself to that person. Get to know them. For that socially awkward kid in the cafeteria, man, invite that student to sit down with you at the lunch table. Bring that student into your circle. Find out what his hobbies are. Find out what his home life is like. Maybe it's a wreck. Maybe that's part of the reason he's so awkward. But get to know him. Treat him with dignity. So continue to develop a genuine faith. That's what I want to challenge us today. Why don't we bow in prayer? Father, some of us might be here this morning, and we can really identify with that Canaanite woman. We, maybe some of us have tried to come to Jesus, but have been pushed away by the people who say they follow him. To that person, Lord, I pray that that person would continue to develop or continue to pursue Jesus. Or maybe, Lord, some of us this morning are hearing this message and we feel particularly with the disciples. Well, we have made some mistakes. We've pushed people away wrongly and we shouldn't have. Lord, for us, Lord, for those persons like that, help, give us the grace and the mercy to go back to those people to apologize, to ask for their forgiveness in order that we may look, make you look great in all that we say and do. We plead for your grace and mercy. Lord, help us to make you look great. We depend upon you for that. We thank you for how great and how awesome you are. We thank you that you have given this message to us through Matthew, who is a wonderful storyteller. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.